Well, thank you to Charlie and the worship team and how, how well they lead each week and how unselfishly they serve and the time they put in to, to work hard to lead us to focus upon the Lord. And uh, praise God that we're able to be here today, able to sing praises, able to pray, and now we get to read God's Word. So this should come as no surprise to you that we're in Matthew chapter 7. You should have a well-worn path to Matthew chapter 7 in your Bible there. When you find it, please stand with me. We're going to read two verses today. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. We're coming into the home stretch in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction... And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that we could read your word and sing your praises and pray. And Lord, I just ask that you would please do something in this place today, in us and through us and among us that only you can do. And we will give you all the praise and honor and glory for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It has been said that all life concentrates on man at the crossroads. All life concentrates on man at the crossroads. What does that mean? It means that life is full of choices. Life is full of lots of choices. Daily, hourly Moment by moment. In every situation, we have a choice to make. In fact, you can't escape the choice because trying to avoid the choice, you make a choice. We decide for one way or another. Now, before I go any further with what we're talking about today in terms of life at the crossroads and about the decisions we make, I want to make a few important distinctions. How I understand the Scripture's uh, to, to speak based upon a simple reading of what it says, but you may see things differently. And that's all right. God is big enough to deal with that. But these are the distinctions that form the basis and foundation for what I'm going to say today regarding our choices. Our choices are based on certain assumptions and commitments. We have assumptions about God, ourselves, other people, the way life works. Our assumptions must line up with God's Word. But not just line up with God's Word, but line up with God's Word rightly divided, rightly handled. Not following a system based on man's ideas, but on what God clearly and plainly says in the Word of God. Now that takes hard work. That takes diligent study. That takes deep thought, being Christian thinkers. That takes pure motives. It takes a spirit-indwelled person wielding the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, in God's strength. It takes humility, recognizing that we are not over the Bible, but we are under its authority. Another distinction is this, life is full of choices that we cannot make without God. Life is full of choices that we cannot make without God. Making choices based on God's counsel in His Word 
takes a recognition that we really can't make any choices without him. Now you might say, but I I don't even think about God. I choose all the time without God. In fact, I don't need God. Either way, he is keeping you alive and your heart is beating and you're able to think because he sustains life. He holds all things together, the scriptures say, by his word. Now, of course, we make lots of choices without acknowledging God. Unbelievers live without thought for God. But ultimately, we can't do anything without God who holds all things together. Now, in the Christian context, everyone who was born again by the Spirit of God, by grace, through faith in Christ, are unable to believe or do anything in life without God's prior working in grace to give them the ability to choose what is right. Let me repeat that. In the Christian context, all those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, are unable to believe or do anything without God's prior working in grace to give them the ability to choose what is right. Uh, This comes, again, from what I would consider a simple, straightforward reading of the Bible. You may not see it the same way, but I want you to see the context with which I am speaking, that Ephesians 1.4 says that we are who are in Christ were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, before the world began. That Romans 8.29 says that we were foreknown by Him, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we were called according to his purpose. Jesus himself, in John chapter 15, verse 16, said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, when you think about that context, our commitments are based upon God's prior and ongoing commitment to us to keep his word, to hold the world together, to keep all things going. Let me give you an example. Let's just say that you've been chosen to be a teacher. You've been hired to be a teacher. Well, you still have to make that daily commitment to go to class and teach. You were chosen, but you've got to make that daily choice. Let's say you were chosen for an all-star team. You've got to go to the field and practice and show up at the game. It's not enough to say, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, but never teach. Or I'm a football player, but never play. So we make choices. For example, I was chosen to be the pastor of this church. But I also choose, must choose, to fulfill my ministry. To engage in what I am called to do. So we choose a way to go. And all the while, God's sovereign hand is guiding our path. That we choose, but God first moves. As Romans 9 says, it does not depend upon the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God who has mercy. God is in control. But we still make choices all day long. Here's the way I like to put it. God uses sinners turned saints who are chosen to receive his undeserved favor, who believe that Christ lovingly atoned for their sins, who are captured by God's amazing grace, his irresistible grace, That you can resist up to a point, but there is a time that you will stop resisting if you are called in Christ. And those who are empowered to stand firm to the end, to endure in Christ. Now, can we adequately explain all that? No. 
It is a quandary we live daily, the challenge we daily live with. But I, for one, rest content unknowing what only the all-knowing one knows. We can rest content knowing, unknowing, not knowing, (laughs) what only the all-knowing one knows. That we choose and God is sovereign and we can't figure all that out, but God can. It's hard to figure out, but sometimes we just need to rest in God who knows. That our choices, though, never trump his. That God's choice always comes first. Now, now this, these distinctions are both comforting and challenging. This is, this is both comforting and challenging news. Comforting because if we are faithless, he remains faithful, as the scriptures tell us. Challenging because we are called by him to choose the narrow road that leads to life on a daily basis. Jesus is calling us daily to choose God's way, to choose God's road, to choose the narrow gate, to choose the narrow road. Moses, near the end of his life, spoke these words to Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I have set before you today life and death, a blessing and a curse. So choose life that you may live, you and your people. Moses said that to them. Joshua, near the end of his life, said, choose this day whom you will serve. You're going to serve God? You're going to serve the false gods. What are you going to do? Jeremiah heard the voice of God saying to him, say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, behold, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. You must make a choice. And this is the decision that Jesus is presenting to us today. He is summing up a contrast that he has made between two kinds of righteousness and two kinds of devotion, between two kinds of treasures, between two kinds of masters, between two kinds of ambitions that we have. And he has presented these in the Sermon on the Mount, and now it's decision time. Now, if you think back to going to camp days, kids, you you remember going to camp, and uh, parents, you got to remember further back going to camp. They'd always build up the week, too, Decision night. I remember going to a camp once where they, they, you know, surprised us and had decision night the first night. Threw us for a loop. Called for the question right away. But here Jesus is now beginning to sum up what he has said in the Sermon on the Mount that we have looked at all year long. And it's decision time. Will it be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan? Will it be the world system or Christ's counterculture that Jesus has been presenting so clearly and so often? In these two verses, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus is pointing to the inescapable choices that we must make. He is pointing to the eternally significant decisions that we must make. And he presents the choice in the form of, of two gates, two ways, two crowds, two destinations. And when you look at it, there is a, there is a finality to the, to the decisions that Jesus is putting before us. There is, a, there is a finality to the options Jesus gives us. There is no middle ground. Now, we would love to have lots of choices, wouldn't we? We'd love to have a little buffet, a little smorgasbord of spiritual choices. People live like that, don't they? I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that and come up with my own hybrid religious system. A lot of people do that today. A little bit of Bible, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. 
We'd love to have lots of choices. We'd love to have a buffet of spiritual choices and come up with our own hybrid system. And many people do that. But Jesus doesn't allow us to have our comforting options. Jesus doesn't allow us to come up with our own comfortable conclusions. He says that ultimately there is one choice because there are only two options. He's very clear about it. Very clear. So let's examine the differences between the ways as we look at life at the crossroads, two ways to live. First thing we see is two gates. Two gates. Now, in verse 13, it begins with the word enter. Enter. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide. The way is broad. That leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. You see the word here twice. The idea of entering. The idea here, in terms of enter, emphasizes a once-for-all decision. You're making a once-for-all decision, and you're going through the gate. I didn't share this with First Hour, but I just remembered that when we were at Niagara Falls on the Canadian side uh, about three years ago, we were on this trip, and I went through the gate to go across, and then I went, oh no, I better go back, and they're like, oh no, you're not. <laughs> we need more information to get you back, you know, and once you go through the gate, you, you were done, you know, no coming back. This was a once-for-all decision. There's no 30-day money-back guarantee on this one. This is not, hey, if you don't like it, you can, you know, go the other way. This is a once-for-all choice. There's the narrow gate, the small gate. The Greek word is stenos. It's where we get our uh, English word stenography. Stenos, stenos. Small. Uh, It's narrow. It's small. It's defined by God's standards, defined by the word of God. Its boundaries are clearly marked. No question about where the boundaries are. God's word, divine revelation, restricts pilgrims on the road to what God has defined as good and right and true. That's why when we say, I live by the word of God, I live by the restrictions that God's word has given. Now, it's interesting, I I use the word restrict, which sounds so limiting. But the interesting thing we find is that The broad way, the wide road, becomes very, very narrow at the end because it leads to death. But the the narrow road opens up into green pastures of freedom in Christ. That that Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. But the gate is small. The gate is narrow. Because it is defined by God's standards. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his autobiography, he told a story about when he was 13 years old. He was a schoolboy, and he decided to expand his thinking, to expand his horizons, and he described how he said, I'm going to broaden my mind as a 13-year-old. And he said this, he said, I was soon changing I believe to I feel. And oh, the relief of it, he said. There was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. He changed his I believe declaration to a I feel and there was nothing to believe except what was comforting or exciting. That's the wide gate. That's the large opening. That's the broad gate where there's lots of room for baggage. Let's lots of stuff in. 
Carry a bunch of stuff with you. Don't have to worry about what you can't leave behind. You're going to take it all with you. No limit on the amount of luggage with, which you wish to take with you. Of course, the opening's going to get so small at the end where it comes to death that you'll be taking nothing with you, but you think you can bring everything because it's so wide and large and, and broad to begin with. What's the narrow gate? What's the narrow gate? It's salvation in Christ alone. It's Jesus himself. The true salvation is in Christ alone, as Acts 4.12 tells us. There's no other way. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. All roads don't lead to God. Narrow equals John 14, verse 6. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One way. Jesus is the only gate that leads to life. I am the door, he said in John chapter 10 and verse 9. I am the door. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You must go through the salvation gate. That God gives us the ability to follow based upon his choice of us from the foundation of the world, but explained as a moment in time or process choice that we make, we cooperate with him by faith. Two gates, the narrow and the wide. The narrow is Jesus. There's also two roads. Two roads. There's the narrow and the broad. Now think with me for a moment about what we've been hearing all all year from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is big on mercy. The Sermon on the Mount is big on grace. So to hear Jesus saying that there is a narrow gate and a narrow road, that can seem really surprising. Narrow. You you look at the word, by the way, and, and you see here that There is a narrow gate in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. And verse 14, the way is narrow. The road is narrow. So you just think, well, there are two verses side by side. Must be the exact same word. It's not. Not the same word. Here this word, a different Greek word, means difficult. It means persecution. It means opposition. It means a rough road. It means a bumpy road. I remember going to Rosarito, Mexico for about 10 years in a row to a church that we helped start down there. And every time we got off the toll road there in Mexico, we got onto the rough road that led up the hill to Pastor Pablo's house and to the church. You got jolted. You got bumped. You had to watch out. It was rough wasn't easy well the narrow road the narrow way is difficult and it signifies a life of suffering a life of hardship jesus in john chapter four in chapter 16 speaks of this life he's foretelling his death and resurrection he's giving them promises and he says to them in verse 31 of John chapter 16, do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. Each one to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because 
The Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. And it feels so good. It feels so comforting. But his disciples were going to be left in the world after he died on the cross and was buried and rose again and went, ascended back to the Father and they would have a life of hardship. They would have a life that was rough and rugged, not easy. Because he said this, he said, in the world you, may, you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Peter calls it a fiery ordeal that comes upon Christ's true disciples for testing, to build endurance, to build substance, to build character, to build strength. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, through many tribulations we shall enter the kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 18, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20, 21. If when you do what is right and are persecuted for it, you suffer for it, that you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. The road marked with suffering is the one that Job experienced. And in it all, everything that happened to him, he did not sin against God. He did not deny God. He was tried. He was tested. And he came forth as gold, purified by fire. All true disciples are called to a narrow, difficult, rough life. A life of suffering. A life of pain. Sure, there is joy and comfort and peace and hope, but there is also the reality of pain. There's also the reality of hardship. There's also the reality of persecution. And those who go down that road will be tried, will be tested, and will come forth as gold purified by fire. There's the narrow road. There's also the broad road, the, the easy road, really the easier road. And it's a life without discipline. It's a life without discipline for those who don't belong to God. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Proof of of belonging to Christ. And parents and, and grandparents, you know that 
when you discipline your children and grandchildren, it's not always because they did something wrong. Often it's because you want them to do what is right. And so you mark out the the path for them and there are boundaries and there are safety guards and and you want them to do what is right and so you you narrow the way for them to help them in their choices. The broad way is easy. It's a life without discipline. Seeking to please man, not God. Which we know is a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The narrow road calls us to rugged discipleship behind Jesus. The rough way of suffering, not the easy way of comfort. And what happens is the salvation gate that we enter in Christ gets us on the road of discipleship to Jesus. And this is a pattern you see in the New Testament. It's the, it's the, the big words are justification and sanctification. That the pattern is this, that, that justification, being made right with God, being declared right in God's sight, having a right relationship with God based upon faith in Christ, comes before sanctification, which is God at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. God at work in us to make us Christ-like. And this pattern is seen all through the Bible. You see it here in Matthew, even. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7, Jesus calls fishermen to follow him. He gives the call long before his longer call to discipleship in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He calls them, but then he continues to call them to a life of following. In Matthew chapter 16, you see the same thing. Follows the same pattern. Peter confesses Christ and then is called to self-denying sacrifice and discipleship. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, 2. That he calls us to faith and then he develops that faith all throughout our life till we go to be with him or Jesus returns, whichever comes first. And all the while we're making choices. Every day, every moment, all the while we're making choices. And as we grow in Christ, we realize our true condition. You know what happens is we realize as we grow in Christ how sinful we are. Fact. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are more aware of your sinfulness today than you were the day you came to know Christ. You're more deeply aware now of your need for Jesus than you were the day you first came to know him. It's like Isaiah. The closer you come to the holiness of God, the more you recognize your own lacking, your own sinfulness. That you know your standing in Christ depends upon God, not upon yourself. That you're willing to be counted among those who travel the harder road then. Because you know that is the only way to life. And you realize that there are two crowds There really are only two crowds. Now, as a proud Italian, I like to say there's only two kinds of people. Italians and everyone else who wishes they were. As a proud UCLA fan, I like to say there's only two kinds of fans. And I'm not going to name the opposition. But seriously, soberly, 
Biblically, there are two crowds. Two kinds of crowds. There's the many who take the popular route, take the popular road, and they live, they end up living a life of self-justification. They end up justifying themselves in the sight of men. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. Luke chapter 16 and verse 14. The Pharisees, who by the way were lovers of money, were listening to all these things that Jesus was saying. He had just told a story of an unrighteous steward. And he says to them this. First of all, they were scoffing at Jesus. And he says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Well, the many take the popular route. It's a life of self-justification, and it's detestable in God's sight. And many find that way. It looks so good to start. There's so much freedom. There's so much lack of effort needed. Just looks so good, looks so comforting, and it leads to death. It narrows out. Jesus speaks of this right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7 and verse 22. 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, they will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. No way, Jesus says. I know your hearts. Many will say to me on that day, try to call me Lord. Never lived with me as Lord. The other crowd is the few. The believers. That's the unpopular route, by the way. It's a life of self-denial. Matthew chapter 16. Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Repudiate yourself. Reject yourself, basically. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses my life for loses his life for my sake, will find it. But what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, the few follow a life of denial, which is that narrow road. And, and Jesus says, few find it, by the way. Because in order to find it, you have to leave everything else behind. Leave behind sin. Leave behind selfish ambition. No one, Jesus says, can follow him without first denying themselves. That's what Jesus says. And the narrow road of following Jesus is a day-by-day decision to acknowledge the lordship of Christ even if no one else does. Even if no one else on your block does. Even if no one else in your class does. Even if no one else on your team does. Even if no one else in your office does. Even if no one else at your church does. 
Praise God, this is a church of narrow road walkers. I love that. You keep me on the straight and narrow, by the way. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. To walk the uneasy road of obedience to Jesus' commands. As opposed to some of the things that Jesus has pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount to stay away from. Anger, lust, ungodliness, divorce, retaliation, hate, lying, conspicuous consumption. These are the things Jesus has warned us about and said, don't go there. The majority will go that way, but the few will not. And by the way, here on earth, disciples of Jesus are usually the moral minority. But in heaven, there will be a great multitude which no one can count gathered around the throne worshiping the Lamb that was slain. It's interesting how in life, decisions are often made by majority opinion, majority rule. We take opinion polls, whatever the majority calls for. But what, what, for those who follow Jesus, what the majority wants should never dictate what we do. God's word decides for us. God's word has decided for us. The way is narrow that leads to life. It's bounded by Scripture and it leads to the most freedom. It leads to life. So what we must do is we must fight the temptation to look around and see how many others are obeying God before we do. Spiritually speaking, by the way, when you Do what the majority do, you destroy your life. That's what it says over and over in the scriptures. In God's word, it is always the majority who do evil. It is always the good who are in the minority. Check it out. So make the daily decision to be in that number. Lord, I want to be in that number. (laughs) uh, I want to show you something at the end of verse 14. Look where it says, it says, there are few who find it. There are few who find what? There are few who find the narrow gate and the small, narrow, difficult, rough way. And it literally, it's in the the present tense, it literally is, few are finding it. How few are finding God's way. That's what that signifies. It's present tense. It's happening right now. If you're a daily disciple, which you ought to be if you follow Jesus, a daily disciple, a moment-by-moment disciple who is eternally secure in Christ, but a moment-by-moment discipleship, then pray for courage to take God's way rather than the path of least resistance. Because there are ultimately two destinations. Two destinations. And one results in life and one results in death. It's very simple. And what we see in this passage is a a contrast between God's way and man's way. Hell is man's way. I was told when I was a kid not to say that word. But it's a Bible term and hell is man's way. And it's destructive. And it's through the wide gate. 
you take the broad path to get there, it is demeaning to those who are made in God's image, made to reflect God's glory. And it leads to death. It leads to destruction. Proverbs 14 and verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the way ends in death. Proverbs 16.25 says the same thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the way ends in death. Heaven is God's way. Heaven is rewarding. Heaven is through the narrow gate. You get there through the suffering way that leads to life. Heaven leads to life. God's way leads to life. And it's life now in its fullest and later as well. In John chapter 10, Jesus says that. In John chapter 10, he's speaking of himself as the good shepherd who knows his own and who lays down his life for the sheep because he loves them so much. And the sheep know his voice. They listen to him. But a stranger, they're not going to follow a stranger. And then Jesus says in verse 7, Truly, truly, I am the door of the sheep, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. You see, Hebrews 2 and verse 9 tells us that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for us so that we might live. Therefore, the second death has no power over those who take the narrow road, who go through the narrow gate of Jesus and who persevere to the end. The second death has no power over us. The first death everyone goes through. Every one of us at some point will die physically. But if you're a believer in Jesus Physical death is an entrance into continuation of eternal life. Lasts forever with God. Your soul will be in the presence of God. You'll always be with Him. He who comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. We who have come to faith in Christ have passed out of death into life, John 5, 24 says. That we are then nourished by the bread of life, Jesus himself. That we have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And we are called to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. In Christ who is our life, Colossians 3, 4. But life outside of loyalty to Christ has plenty of room. No waiting there. Life outside of loyalty to Christ has plenty of room, that's the broad way, for almost anything here and now. It gives permissions that God doesn't give to engage in tempting things that seem to make life freer, but really enslave you. See, the easy way says, do whatever you want. Do whatever you please. The hard way says, do whatever God wants. Do whatever pleases God. You know, people like to say, you know, God's all about unconditional love. 
God's love, and they don't read the rest of the Bible. Oh, it's all about love. Then they say, well, God wants us to be happy. And then they say, we can do whatever we want, anytime we want, to whoever we want. It leads people to think that everything is the same. Leads people to think that all roads lead to God. Jesus says there is one way that leads to life. The alternate leads to death. And it's a rugged way. It's interesting, a lot of times men will say, I don't like the church because it's, a, it's just too soft. Well, sometimes we get it wrong. We, we portray the Christian life in a, in a wrong way. We think of it as just, oh, it's so easy and calming and comforting and peaceful. Hey, Jesus says it like it is. He shoots straight with us. And sure, there is peace like a river, but there is also persecution that tears you apart. And only by God's grace can we persevere. This passage of Scripture really is all about two primary concerns, having to do with direction and desire, and it often comes down to our desire. It often comes down to our drive, to our passion, which determines the directions we take, where we're headed, and going in God's way necessitates a desire to go in God's way. It's like Abraham being called by God to leave his homeland to go to a land that he hadn't been to. And in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, Abraham got up and went. He wanted to go. He obeyed. He went up. He got up and went and obeyed God's call. He was called by God. He decided to follow. Grace called, faith enabled. Everyone who has ever followed has done so in God's strength by his enabling. That we are to ask for the ancient paths, Jeremiah 6, 16. We are to ask and it shall be given, Matthew 7, verse 7. The path of the upright, Proverbs 15, 19 says, leads to life. The path of life. And it's lit by God's word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But you've got to want to enter. You've got to want to go there. God's not going to take you kicking and screaming. A reluctant disciple. You know, I can tell you I love to fish all day long, but if you never hear of me going fishing, you're going to think, what's all that about? You're going to question my desire. One thing I have desired, that I will seek. Psalm 42, as the deer longs for the, for the water, so my soul longs for you. My, my soul thirsts for you. There's desire. So the question really is, what do you really want in life? What do you want in life? See, sticking to the narrow way, that rough way, that persecution, suffering way, means standing firm in the midst of hardship. As 2 Timothy 3.12 says, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. God desires not only desire, but movement in his direction. Direction is the other thing. You can say all day long, I want to follow Jesus. If you stay right there, you're not following. Movement in a Godward direction. It's like a pilgrim making progress. You ever read John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress? It implies two things. Pilgrim means they're going somewhere, and progress is they're getting somewhere. You want to go, and you go. You make progress. As God leads... 
to live in such a way that God is glorified, that he is honored, that he is acknowledged, that, that his work is not hindered. Psalm 119, verse 38 says, Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. God is saying, engage with me in, the word, in my word because that's the way to stay on the narrow path. And it produces reverence, a desire for what God wants. Think back to Pilgrim's Progress. He was on the narrow path, going to the celestial city with a scroll in his hand, standing for the word of God. And at some point, he left the scroll behind. He had to go retrace his steps, go back and get the word of God, and continue on. He couldn't go without it. There's a tie-in here to God's word. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Take pains in these things so that your progress will be evident to all in that context. The question for us today is, where are we headed? Where are you going? Are you making Movement in God's direction. Are you standing still? The person headed in God's direction says, as Psalm 19 verse 35 says, make me walk in the path of your commands, for I delight in it. I want that. 2 Corinthians 13 5 says, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Now there's a lot of kind of tests you can take to examine. But could one of the ways to test ourselves be whether or not we are on the narrow path, the harder path, the path of suffering? And the next question is, what does it look like? How do you know? See, taking the difficult path, the path of suffering, one of hardship, means the decision that you make to keep your marriage vows or not. It means the decision that you make to tell the truth and not to lie or cheat or steal or cook the books. It means that decision that you make not to take an unfair advantage when you know it's right there for the taking. It means deciding that you will not deny Christ when the time comes. And by the way, things are getting harder in America. And there will be a day It means the perseverance of the saints. It means endurance in Christ. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, God says. Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes, I will not erase his name from the book of life. Revelation 13, 8. The book of life written from the foundation of the world. The book of the lamb that was slain. The life is One long string of continuous choices. All lined up in a row ready for us to make them. And which way are we going to choose? You cannot live without choosing. And the choices we make reveal our desires and the choices we make determine our direction. And in these two verses, we come face to face with the choices that Jesus puts before us. That we must choose between a life lived for self or a life lived for God. And to those that choose the wide gate, the broad way, the many who have chosen the way that leads to destruction, I guess I would just ask, you know, how's that going for you? How's that working for you? You know, you may say, well, 
It's going great. It's working, sure. But according to Jesus, it leads to death. It's a dead end. One last thing. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus began the sermon with such amazing tenderness. Such amazing comfort. He embraced with his promises and his blessings those who felt the least embraceable. But now he balances it with tough realities. God's word is truth. It contains not only comfort, but also challenge. And God's word, and, and if you in context with the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a set of suggestions that we can look over and leave or take. It's, it's not one choice among many. Jesus makes it clear there is an exclusive way to live. There are two gates, Jesus herself. Two roads, life in Christ or self-focused life. Two crowds, the many wayward, the focused few. Two destinations, heaven or hell, life or death. But because of Christ's power, we can, in Christ, remain steadfast in the midst of a difficult life. Making moment-by-moment decisions and kept on the road that leads to life by him who is the life. He is the life. You see, Jesus' gate and Jesus' roads are two saving facts that deserve a lot of our attention on a daily basis. The gate is his gracious, substitutionary death and resurrection in which we believe and are saved. His road is the way of his gracious commands to follow him in rugged daily discipleship. And it is a once-for-all decision and a long walk at the same exact time. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are good and that you are able to handle the quandary of a once-for-all decision and a long walk existing at the same time. Thank you, Lord, that you know everything. And thank you, Lord, that, that we have this opportunity to walk your narrow path. And Lord, we just pray that you would focus our desires, lead us in your direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.